0: Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Bible scholar, Dr. Mike Heiser. Thanks for being with us, Mike. Thanks for having me. So I have read your book, The Unseen Realm, and um, my podcast is dedicated to exploring the ancient context of the Bible. You certainly bring a unique uh, perspective, at least to me, on what that ancient context is like.
1: Um,
0: One of the main things that you talk a lot about is the divine counsel Mm -hmm. view. Why don't you give us kind of the overview for some of my listeners that may not be familiar with your work what what is the divine council view sure divine council is a term that really
1: you know scholars use it a lot but it derives from Psalm 82 specifically verse 1 uh where we have uh god has taken his place in the divine council elohim nitzav L and elohim their common word for god uh, you know just you know, boy, do the math, I mean, a couple thousand times in the Hebrew Bible, and the grammar there tells us that it should be translated as a singular, so God you know, is perfectly fine there. But then in the second part of the verse, it says in the midst of the Elohim, in the midst of the gods, Becher of Elohim, he holds judgment. And so we have a plurality of Elohim in the second half of the verse. So we have Elohim twice, same verse, one instance is singular, the other is plural. And so uh, you know, when you look at it in Hebrew, there are a lot of people, uh, especially critical scholars, you know, who who love to leap on this verse and say, oh, here we have polytheism. Again, I, I argue uh, a lot against that view. I, I argued against that view in my dissertation, even though it's the academic consensus. But in lay terms, it's really just God uh, among the members of his heavenly host um, you know and they participate with him in his rule but the again the reason it's controversial is because we have plural elohim there and we can talk about why people sort of stumble over that and why they don't need to if if you like but in a nutshell that's what the divine council is
0: yeah well so i you know i think to the average christian many christians i think would say they believe in angels and demons and so there's mm-hmm. sort of this belief in spiritual beings but when i read your book you use Stronger language. You talk about gods and mm-hmm. divine beings, and we might tend to say spiritual beings, which sounds to us a little less than divine beings, perhaps. So, yeah, help me help me flesh out the difference between monotheism and polytheism. Where does your view of there being other divine beings kind of fit yeah. into that?
1: Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a funny parsing. I don't know how you can be a spirit being without being a divine being because you know, you're <laughs> not a human being or you're not an animal. But, yeah, we, we use this language to sort of make ourselves feel better. And and my predilection is to, is to use the language that Scripture uses. And so plural Elohim, there it is, and it's not the only place. When you go down to verse 6, he's, God is speaking to the Elohim. He said, I, I said, you are Elohim, sons of the Most High. So there we have more familiar language, perhaps, B'nai Elyon. Uh, again, we know who the Most High is. It's God, so these are sons of God. Here they're called sons of the Most High. You know, but again, we we even shy away from that term. You know, We use terms like angels. Yeah. Uh, again, my predilection is to use the, the, the terminology Scripture uses and then try to help people uh, understand it. The, the reason why people have a problem with it, there, there are a couple of reasons. But when we see the letters on a screen or on a, on a piece of paper, G, O, and D – We just mentally, and we really can't help it because of the fact that we're Western uh, in our worldview, we're Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, factors into this the way we've been taught to think about the letters G, O, and D. And so when we see it, we just immediately mentally assign a specific set of unique attributes to the letters G, O, and D, which is why people get creeped out when you put an S on it. Mm Well, the, the the biblical writers did not think of the word Elohim the way we think of G O and D. And and you, you should always you know ask well, Mike, how do you know that? Well, it's not hard to figure that out because if you just look up you know look at Elohim through the Hebrew Bible, you learn that Elohim is a term that's actually used of half a di- dozen different things that an Orthodox Israelite uh, would not have viewed as being the same thing at all. So you have the gods of the council, you have the gods of the nations, you have the, the God of Israel, they're called Elohim. You have the Shadim in Deuteronomy 32.17, for instance, which typically gets translated demons. which It's kind of an unfortunate translation, but it, it's not the God of Israel, but they're still called Elohim. You have the disembodied human dead in First Samuel 28. It's mm-hmm. called Elohim. I mean there are lots of different Elohim and, and no Israelite, again, who's thinking coherently at all, especially if they're Orthodox, is going to think a thought like this. Well my, my dear departed aunt or uncle is at the same level ontologically as the god of Israel. It's absurd, but oh well, they're but they're they're all called Elohim, so they must all be the same, same yeah. set of attributes. No, that's not the way they thought about it at all. That's something we impose on the text. All the term means, Elohim, is you would use that term as a label for anything, any entity that by nature, its proper estate, its proper domain, proper nature, is disembodiment in what we think of as the spiritual world. So in that world, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. There's lots of Elohim, he's one of them, but there are no other Elohim like him. But that that theology doesn't derive from the term, it derives from the fact that the Biblical writers describe Yahweh in ways that no other Elohim ever get described, and in fact credits Yahweh with the creation of all things visible and invisible. So. The, the idea you know monotheism is is kind of a, a clunky term it, it was coined in the seventeenth century, and it doesn 't really describe what I just described the phenomena of the biblical text, but the spirit of the term that Yahweh is unique he is he is species unique he is ontologically unique there 's none like him that's certainly uh is true. And that that you know, the, the spirit of the term is reflected in the biblical text. It just doesn't derive from a single word like Elohim.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, and so let's talk about the Shema for a second, because I, I think the translation of the Shema that I've heard the most is Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar, but from what I understand, there's no actual verb in the Hebrew. And and so I've (laughs) seen, I've seen some other translations that say, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And and it's kind of the same thing, but it it shifts the nuance a little bit. It's not so much necessarily commanding monotheism as much as it is commanding the worship of Yahweh alone. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a preference on those translations? I mean, do you, what do you see as significant in the Shema?
1: Well, it, it it's true, you know that, you know as you said that the, the term there, there's no verb here uh, in the entire verse, which kind of you know surprises people. It freaks them out a little bit. Um, it just doesn't sound like that's possible, <laughs> <laughs> you know, unless you're you're used to sort of dealing with Hebrew. But there's actually five different ways to translate the the Shema. Uh, Lord of God is one. The Lord is one. The Lord our God the lord is one the lord our god is one lord the lord is our god the lord alone all, you know and our one god is the lord the lord you know all of them are possible all of them are grammatically uh, defensible uh, in terms of what you have there i don't really have a a particular preference my, my you know i'd say you, use the one you kind of like uh, <laughs> you know, it's fine with me but but you need to recognize the fact that in a book like deuteronomy which is where the shema comes from we have affirmations of the reality of other elohim and so you know it's obvious that the you know israelites would have known you know about this verse jesus would have known about psalm 82 and some of this other stuff and so paul would have the disciples would have there must be some way that they understood this material that they could juxtapose the shema with other verses in their own scriptures and again, my argument in the book is that the, the point is not uh, the point of the Shema and the point of other v- phrases like, there's none besides me, you know, there's, there's none like me, all that sort of stuff. That it's not about the exclusive existence of one Elohim, you know, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Rather, the point is incomparability. <laughs> and when you look at the way Yahweh of Israel is described, we can flesh out what that incomparability entailed and meant, again, for the Orthodox, the theologically straight uh, Israelite. And again, the the, the, the concept that we're, we're accustomed to in, in Judeo-Christian theology about the uniqueness of this one, is is certainly affirmed I mean that is not contrived in any respect it's just that again some of our terminology doesn't help we might have we might have been used to hearing about the Shema in one particular way and we're not aware of some of these other passages and that's what I'm trying to do in the book I'm trying to make people aware that look you know we unless you're you're willing to see frankly fundamental contradictions in, in the Old Testament in in some of the most important theological uh, points being made, uh, you know, unless, unless you want to live with that, you need to think a little bit better about it. And obviously, Israelites you know, knew all this stuff existed. It was all sacred to them, certainly to Jesus and the apostles. And there are ways to, to navigate this that are very consistent with what is actually in the text.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, so let's Let's look at the other sort of what I see as big worldview you outline in your book. It's um, what you call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Mm-hmm. Give us the elevator pitch on that one. How does it sure. uh, d- distinguish from or grow out of the Divine Council worldview?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I should say, along with the Divine Council worldview, that it's not just an academic exercise. Now you've read the book, and my point with talking about the Divine Council worldview in general. Is so that we can begin to see better how God looks at us in terms of our status. Why the family language is used, for instance, it has deep Old Testament roots, hmm. and how what Eden was really about, what it represented, and also our destiny—you uh, know, the whole salvation history plan—and part of that, again, this subset within the the overall Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Divine Council worldview, is this Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview, and that is. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, it says that when the Most High divided up the nations, okay, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. Now, a lot of English translations do not read sons of God at Deuteronomy 32. It reads sons of Israel. Uh, and it, again, it's more than an academic exercise because the next verse, verse 9, says, well, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he allotted them, again, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God, fixed their borders, then the Lord's portion was his people. Jacob was his allotted inheritance, his allotted heritage. And what this does is it takes our mind back to the Tower of Babel, that's when the nations were divided, and it turns that incident kind of on its head, or at least it it introduces a a, a new nuance that, when that happened, Yahweh, in effect, disinherited, divorced uh, the nations of the world, did no longer you know, want to be in direct relationship with them again because they're, they're now in rebellion again. And so he pu- assigns them, he allots them to lesser Elohim in his council, lesser divine beings. And it says, I'm going to go off now, the very next chapter, Genesis 12, right after Babel, I'm going to now start up my own people, my own nation. Again, I'm going to start over and I'm going to call this guy Abraham and I'm going to make a people from him. This is going to be my portion. And it's going to be through him, through through his descendants, Genesis 12, 3, the Abrahamic covenant, that I'm ultimately going to bring you back into relationship through through Abraham and his descendants. All these other nations will be blessed. But we get this, this framework for explaining things like why do the other nations, you know, worship gods? Where do they get these pantheons? We, we, in Psalm eighty-two factors into this because Psalm eighty-two has, ju- has God judging the sons of God over the nations for being corrupt. We're not told when they become corrupt. But in Deuteronomy, we're told that they seduce the Israelites to idolatry, they do some other bad things in Psalm 82. And this becomes the explanation for why the Old Testament story is Israel against the God, you know, against the nations and Yahweh against the gods. And it, it introduces what I call cosmic geography, Again, this idea that Earth is under dominion, enslaved, to hostile, rebellious, divine beings that now Yahweh and his people
0: have to deal with. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, in in the verse itself, and I should have brought better notes because I'm probably going to stumble over the words here, but I think that uh, the word for God, when it says that God divided up the nations, is uh, different than Yahweh. It's something like God Most High.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Elion when the Elyon. Most High. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so I've heard some scholars make a distinction between that term and Yahweh and mm-hmm. say that this is one of those other evidences of earlier polytheism. So yeah. How do you... React to that, I mean, what is your argument against that
1: yeah that that 's very common I mean for your listeners who are interested in in something uh, uh, as esoteric as this, uh, if they google my name plus Yahweh and l mm. and then distinct deities they 're going to find a, a published article, a journal article I did on this so they can get lots of detail, but in a nutshell. The parallel passage, there are, there are a number of ways to approach this. The parallel passage to Deuteronomy thirty-two, eight, nine 9 is Deuteronomy four, nineteen, and 20. And there you have the, the name Yahweh. And, and Yahweh's not being allotted the nation of Israel as though there was a superior deity to him and he sort of just gets a handout. In that p- parallel passage, it's Yahweh takes Israel as his inheritance. Mm. If you go back to Deuteronomy 32, uh, people often skip the fir- the two verses prior to verses 8 and 9, where we read, Do you thus repay the Lord? Again, there's the divine name Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old, consider the, the years of many gener- generations. Ask your father, he will show you your elders, they will tell you. There are two specific items in, in the Hebrew text in these earlier two verses that are very specifically L epithets, L descriptions, the creating and the establishing. And poly the, the scholars who want to argue for polytheism will say, well, this is just like the old Semitic religion, you know, where you have a most high God who's L and then Yahweh is an underling, you know, Yahweh is one of his sons, so there's two distinct deities. Well, the problem with that is, is you have two L epithets in verses six and seven that are aligned to Yahweh the divine name in verse six, and then eight and nine is El Yon, which is another epithet of El in Canaanite religion. So the biblical scribes are actually merging all this stuff together. Mm. And then when you factor f- chapter four nineteen and twenty into this, where it's only the divine name, it's very clear that that the biblical writers want to convey the message that Yahweh of Israel is the most high and he's this L figure who creates and establishes, mm. you know, so you actually have a, a sort of a, an agglomeration of the terminology in these four verses and then bringing Deuteronomy four nineteen to 20 into the picture kind of unifies the picture rather than just picking on this one term and then trying to distinguish them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting the way the terms blend. I mean, do you see that as similar to the first few chapters of Genesis where you get uh, Elohim creating and then Yahweh Elohim as kind of a combined name and then just Yahweh later in Genesis as this, uh, you know, you see almost an evolution of which name of God is being used. Uh, yeah, it,
1: it's, I mean, it, in in specifics, it's not the same thing because Yahweh was never a wider Semitic deity name. So if, if you had two different Semitic deity names, then you'd have the same sort of circumstance. But but conceptually, again, this idea that that the biblical scribes want to take two terms and fuse them together for the sake of their readers, that you, you do have that. Mm. Um, you know, you have Yahweh by itself. I think the earliest reference in Genesis is at the end of chapter four. But then you have this other combination you mentioned, Yahweh Elohim. And you know that that takes you into discussions of, okay, are there two separate creation accounts? You know, is this is this you know part of a you know is this part of the argument or does it prove part of the argument that genesis is sort of a patchwork quilt of a couple different documents and that sort of thing that that that's a bigger picture you know sort of item but even if that is the case you'd actually have two israelite sources that are using two different terms for their own single god and so it becomes a literary question rather than, you know, a a presumed polytheism to monotheism trajectory.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly a layman's perspective, but I've almost viewed it as um, the biblical authors walking people into the more intimate view of Yahweh. It's like, you know, at first there's this recognition that our God is Elohim who created the universe, and then that gets paired with the covenant name Yahweh, and then you get talk of just Yahweh by itself, and it, it's almost this... Uh, you know, as if the author wanted people to think about the God of Israel as all of this, and introducing it in a certain way. Yeah,
1: I mean, what you're basically saying is, could could there be a literary theological uh, intention you right. know, with the variation of the names? And, yeah. You know, it was it's kind of interesting. You know, when I was in graduate school, because I, I, I'm I'm something in between. I don't buy the the typical JEDP thing, but I also don't buy you know, that Moses wrote every word of the Torah. Kind of, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm what used to be called a supplementarian, but without rabbit trailing into the history. I, I actually asked the question uh, in graduate school uh, that essentially went like this. You know, isn't it true that in the text that underlies the Septuagint that you actually have over a hundred differences in terms of the divine names in the Torah and so if you factor that in, doesn't that sort of wreck the, d- <laughs> the divine name criterion, you know, for this whole JEDP thing? And, and the answer mm. I got was, yeah, that is correct, but that was probably just a sloppy translation of <laughs> Septuagint's part. And I'm like, really, this is a doctoral seminar, and that's the answer to that question? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, again, I'm not, I'm not troubled by, by different uh, – you know, authorial hands in, in the Torah. But I thought that was a really lame
0: you
1: know, kind of <laughs> answer. Just was not very satisfying.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and one one thing I, I want to explore maybe a little bit more is I think you've mentioned this a little bit, or at least it feels like we've tiptoed around it a bit. But you, you see elements of polemic uh, in, in this as well, where, you know, these uh, elements of Babylonian religion or Canaanite religion that the Israelites would have been aware of, the text seems to be oh, yeah. intentionally combating that
1: yeah it, that, and that's why when it comes to Genesis one to eleven uh, I do think that was either written uh during the exile or substantially uh overhauled and edited during the exile because of that very thing hmm. there there are and a, and a lot of the connections back into the Mesopotamian context, and there are some really. I mean, well-known ones from everything from the, the opening verses of Genesis 1 to the flood story to the, the, the genealogies in chapter 5. Hey, it's, you know, they match the Sumerian king list in a number of respects. You know, you've got the whole Tower of Babel thing going on. A lot of the the, the specific text, though, that the biblical writers or writer, you know, however you want to view that, are connecting, you know, linking back into are actually sixth century compositions, which would fit the exile, mm-hmm. um, you know, pr- pretty well. And, and even the reference to the spoken word, you know, that, that God said, let there be light. There's only one parallel known to creation by spoken word, uh, which happens to be Egyptian, but it's also from the same time period, uh, the Memphite theology. So, so when you look at things like this, it's very clear that, that the, the, the biblical writers are taking shots at at the theology you know of the, of their competitors you know yeah. of, of Mesopotamia because they they are pulling stuff out and and putting little footholds into their own material and and sort of poking their gods in the eye and, <laughs>
0: and saying you know
1: no this is the god of Israel who should get credit for this
0: yeah well and you mentioned the uh, Babylonian watchers i think they were called i forget the other names the the, yeah, more the original Al-Alu. yeah yeah and uh, I think some connection then to the the Nephilim and the idea of the giants as well. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. It's the the, the connections are very tight, and it you, you can tell if you know the backstory at any at any really any of these given incidents in, in primeval history, uh, primeval biblical history. I mean, if if you know the backstory, it's very evident that they are just going after um, the the gods and the, and the theological concepts and the, the, really the whole worldview. Yeah, uh, of the Babylonians, and they're not pulling any punches.
0: Well, and, and so then that, I guess, kind of leads into something I've been wrestling with a bit, which is I think it is extremely important for us to understand the worldview of the people that wrote the Bible, but to what extent should we adopt their worldview? And, and I guess what I mean is take, for instance, the giants. Should we believe that there were entire tribes of people that were six and a half or seven feet tall at the time? Because you talk about, you know, them perceiving the conquest in terms of stamping out the giant tribes and things like that. Or is it possible that God was just speaking to them in a way that they would understand in their worldview and that the spiritual truth is the point, but perhaps it's more metaphor than history in some of those details?
1: Yeah, I'm actually... I'm actually not troubled with either alternative. The, the, the only thing that irritates me is when we try to strip the, uh, the supernatural out of these texts to make them go away. But what, but what you're suggesting is essentially a, a mythic alternative, and that you know, using that word troubles a lot of Christians because they don't understand what is actually meant academically or literarily. Uh, by the word myth, all, all, all that a myth is in terms of literature is a story where divine beings are major characters. Well, that certainly fits the Bible. I mean, good grief, it, you know, God's the major character. You know, so it, if, if we're gonna if we're gonna look at it this way, I think it is possible. What, what you just said that, you know, that this certain this kind of language is being used to convey the idea that hey these enemies that are you know the Israelites ran into in the land they were you know empowered or 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 they were they were associated with powers of supernatural darkness and that that is why this language is being used so that 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 reality isn't lost now, that, now you can affirm that without affirming that you know, the, certain people groups they run into are are actually giants. But I mean, when you when you use that language, especially again in light of the the polemic back to Mesopotamia through the Opkalu, if people are familiar with that, they're going to know. Okay, these are bad guys, and and this is a this is a spiritual conflict. Yeah. It's not just a, a human conflict, but but this is a spiritual conflict too. So I, I mean, I personally am, am comfortable saying that. I'm I'm comfortable with the alternative too. I mean it. You know, it it doesn't bother me one way or the other, Mm. um, which is why, you know, I I sort of introduce, you know, both, you know, ideas because, you know, to an ancient person, that would have communicated very well and they wouldn't have gone away from that thinking, oh, I can't trust this account. They're not thinking that at all. (laughs) If anything, it's like, boy, this is really important to know, you know, that, that, that there was there was a spiritual element here and and it it's just a it's the vehicle for communication so i tend to again just by rule of thumb for me mentally i mean i don't i don't spell this out anywhere but when it comes to information that the bible gives me about the spirit world and its intersection with the natural world you know our world uh i think you know, I, I want to err on the side that gives Scripture the benefit of the doubt when it's giving me information that I can't test with the tools of science or natural inquiry. Uh, by definition, you know, information about spirit beings cannot be put under a microscope. and doesn't conform to, um, you know, what we think of as the scientific method. Um you know, so I, I tend to give it the benefit of the doubt because I I can't really use those tools to get at it. When it comes to something like cosmology, it's a little bit different because mm. okay, we 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 do know what's going on with cosmology. These things can be tested, and of course they have. But again, I I I think that scripture and we we live this way all the time. You know, why don't why don't why isn't this okay with the Bible? Where I can affirm something that's true, but I may. I may falter, I may I may make a, a mistake or, or, or say things poorly when I'm trying to articulate the truth of that thing. Uh, and, and so the biblical writer can be can be making a point about who the Creator is and that there is only one creator and the Creator is real and essential and they might use cosmological statements that we know don't conform to science, but that doesn't make the the theological proposition any less true. yeah you know if I say, hey, I think O.J. Simpson is guilty, and then I do a crummy job you know trying to articulate why that doesn't change him into an innocent person anymore. You know what I mean? It doesn't change the circumstances. He is either guilty or innocent, regardless of the way I talk about him or try to articulate a case against him. You know and we do this all the time, where our our speech, our thinking, because we're finite, you know beings, we're not omniscient. Uh, neither were the biblical writers. You know, lo and behold, they're not omniscient beings; they're just <laughs> humans. You know, so I don't have a—I don't have any difficulty uh, theologically or philosophically distinguishing truth propositions from the the limitations of of how those truth propositions can be articulated.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, so this has been. Great, Dr. Heiser. I appreciate your time. Before we close out, why don't you tell people, if they're interested in your work, where can they go to get more information? Can we find sure. you online? Yep,
1: yeah, my homepage, sort of the nerve center for everything I do, is DR, as in doctor, and then MSH, my initials, drmsh.com, and that will take you to links for, for books like The Unseen Realm. I also write some fiction, but you'll get links to Amazon, I have a number of other websites on different subjects, and I have a podcast, the Naked Bible podcast, and some blogs, too. But you can pretty much find anything I'm into if you go to drmsh.com.
0: All right. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you making the time for the show.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Dustcast. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. That's a great place to leave a comment about an episode or ideas for future episodes or any questions you have. You can email me at jason at and you can find The Dustcast on Twitter, Facebook, and most of your favorite podcast subscription services, including iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave me a rating or a review. I'd appreciate it. And of course, let me know what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear next. I hope that you enjoyed the episode with Dr. Heiser. Go and have a blessed week.